Father, we ask now that you would speak through your living word in a living way, and that you would work in our hearts what's pleasing to you, and work in us that which produces reverence for you. Use your word to increase our fear of you, to increase our faith, to increase our delight in your son, to increase our longing for the age to come. God, I pray that you would um, bless your people in ways that are above what I can even imagine to ask you for through your word now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll please open to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, at, at my church today, this afternoon, we meet in the afternoons, uh, we don't have our own building, I'm going to start the book of Ecclesiastes, and providentially, this is the Sunday that Randy asked me to preach, so I uh, just wanted you to know that I didn't tee up Ecclesiastes for you because I thought, <laughs> Cal- Calvary needs this. <clears throat> I don't know, did I just apologize for preaching Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes. Some, some have called this the strangest book in the Bible. Others hold it in special esteem. Uh, Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick, called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. Martin Luther commented in both directions. He said, this book is one of the more difficult books in all of Scripture, one which no one has ever completely mastered. He also said, this noble little book should be read by all men with great carefulness every day. The message of Ecclesiastes is really important. It gives the unvarnished truth about life, that in this fallen world, real life is really hard. And then very soon, very suddenly, it's over. How should we live in such a world? And can we actually have joy in it? And is there anything better to look forward to? The Spirit inspired the words of this book to tell us those things. So look at verse 1. The Spirit speaks in this book through a man called the preacher. Verse 1. Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David king in Jerusalem. Okay, which Davidic king is talking to us here? The wisest one there was, Solomon. The book of Proverbs is very similar to Ecclesiastes, and it begins with the same kind of introduction that we just read here. But in Proverbs, Solomon drops his name. Proverbs 1.1, the Proverbs of Solomon. Now hear this, son of David, King of Israel. Hear the connection to Ecclesiastes? And then the end of Ecclesiastes makes us think of Solomon and the Proverbs even more than this first verse. Uh, Flip quickly to the end of Ecclesiastes. In the conclusion, in chapter 12, the preacher tells us a little more about himself and his goals of his work. So follow along, Ecclesiastes 12, beginning in verse 9, as I read. 12.9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. You see? The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Verse 12, my son, well that sounds a lot like Proverbs, doesn't it? Solomon constantly addresses his wisdom in Proverbs to my son, my son. So my son, be aware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study, there is a weariness of the flesh. And now in verse 13, the preacher drives home the main point he's been developing throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So that sums up the words of the wise. 
in the end of Ecclesiastes, we hear the end of the matter. Fear God. And that reminds us of the other book of wisdom he wrote. In the beginning of Proverbs, Solomon says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So obviously there's much overlap between these books of spirit-inspired Solomonic wisdom, but but there is a distinct emphasis in each. Uh, Here's how one man put it. In his youth, Solomon wrote the Song of Songs with its accent on love. In his maturity, Solomon wrote Proverbs with its emphasis on how to deal with the practical problems of life. And then in his old age, he reflected on the frustrations of a lifetime and wrote Ecclesiastes. In it, he offered his mature reflections on how to cope with life's frustrations. That's Ecclesiastes. The wisdom of the wisest after living a long, full life and and feeling so many pains and frustrations of life in a fallen world, he's writing to those younger than him, my son, my son. He says this, life is hard a lot of times. It doesn't make sense a lot of times. So let let me make it simple for you. Here's what you should do. Fear God in everything you do. And, and find joy in everything God gives. Those are the two main exhortations that we hear on repeat throughout this book. Fear God in everything you do. Find joy in everything God gives. And the Spirit inspired dying Solomon to write this book, to tell us things like that, to equip us to be as wise as we can be, and as happy as we can be, as we walk the narrow road through a hard life that leads to eternal life. Okay, so if that's his goal, where should he begin to accomplish that? Well, surprisingly, he begins sounding a rather bleak note. And he's wise enough to know we needed it. If you are going to start down the path of wisdom and joy, headed to eternal life, first... You have to pass through the gate of some very difficult truths. Hard truths that shatter human pride. Hard truths that dash false hopes about what life in this world should be like for us, even though we're finite creatures and sinners. And there are two big truths in this opening passage of Ecclesiastes that wise King Solomon knows you need to come to terms with before you can live in true God-fearing joy. And here's the first. Everything is vanity under the sun. Everything is vanity under the sun. See it in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's really hard to miss the main point of that verse. Five of the first words in the preacher's message are vanity, 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 vanity. And he wraps up his message sounding the exact same note. Again, in chapter 12, verse 8. So the last thing he says, right before he he writes that little wrap-up section that we read earlier, Ecclesiastes 12, 8, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. So that's the truth of this book in a nutshell. Or, or at least that, that's the nutshell. That all the truth of this book fits in. That's the wraparound truth in the beginning and end that, that holds together all the stuff in the middle. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Everything. Vanity. In the utmost vanity. Uh, th- this phrase, vanity of vanities, that's a, a Bible-ish way of saying the ultimate vanity. Or complete vanity. So in the Bible, the holy of holies means the most holy place. The song of songs means the ultimate song, the best song. The king of kings and the lord of lords means the highest king and lord. So vanity of vanities means the vainest vanity. Vanity to the utmost. 
That's what everything is. Okay, what is that supposed to mean? Well, unfortunately, some English Bibles translate this word as meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But that can't be the idea. We've already heard God will bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil. So though it's not right to say everything is meaningless. That, that's not a helpful way to translate this word. The Hebrew word translated vanity here means most basically breath or mist or vapor, uh, something that is light and of little consequence and doesn't last very long. So, so that's the main point. Our lives, everything we have here, it's all vapor-like. It, it will all evaporate quickly. Your, your life in this world, everything you work for in it is like the breath that you see when you breathe out on a cold day, and it's gone. Just about as soon as it appears. Uh, many other times, this same Hebrew word's used in the Old Testament, and it, it's translated as breath. Uh, Psalm 144 uses the same Hebrew word, hevel. Translated vanity in Ecclesiastes 1-2. Here it makes the same point, but it's translated breath. Psalm 144, verse 4 Man is like a breath, same word. His days are like a passing shadow. So, so really, this is, it's the same idea as in James 4, 14, when he says, what is your life? You know how he answers? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know, I, I couldn't help but think when I was studying that this week of, of the very sad and uh, sobering news that we received about our beloved brother, Joe Oliver, this week. You know, it seems like he may not have much time left. But this first truth of Ecclesiastes is, is supposed to sober you up, that the same thing is true of you, too. Ecclesiastes is delivering you the same kind of sober news. You don't have much time left. Your days are few. You, everyone around you, and all the things of this world are like the most vapor-like of vapors. Now you say, wow, that's, that's pretty depressing. But Solomon is trying to say, no, that's actually liberating. This is the gate to wisdom. This dose of reality is designed to save you from resting your happiness on a house of cards. It's designed to rescue you from a delusional pride that, that will, if you don't give up, lead to a, a heap of bitter disappointments. How much you accomplish and accumulate in this life in comparison with others it doesn't really matter. All your present sufferings and frustrations, they won't last long. Vanity of vanities, breath of breaths, all is merely a breath. He emphasizes, Solomon, before anything else, the utterly fleeting nature of this life. And embracing that hard truth is, and it must be, step number one on the path of true wisdom and joy. And so, conversely, foolish and sad will be the man who ignores this reality and doesn't make peace with it. Now, verse 3 leads us to a deeper understanding of what it means that everything is vanity. It means not only that what we are and have is, is fleeting, it also means that what we do will often be frustrating and sometimes even fruitless and, and futile. Look at verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And versions of this question echo again throughout Ecclesiastes. Uh, 2.22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? 3.9, nine. 
What gain has the worker from his toil? And the clear answer is, not much, nothing. And at least in one place, Solomon says so directly. Ecclesiastes 2.11. He says, I considered all my hands had done, the toil I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So this, this haunting question in verse 3 has a, a haunting answer. Basically nothing. Why? Why no gain for all our toil under the sun? Oh, okay, first, understand what we're talking about here. The phrase, under the sun. What does this refer to? It refers to just this present life, in this present age. Now, I say that in contrast to what, what some good and godly men have, have taught, that in Ecclesiastes, life under the sun means living without reference to God, living without a heavenly perspective, as if if you live for God and with God's perspective, then you can live in, a, in an above-the-sun kind of way, and then life won't be so hard. But that's not quite right. Even if you are a Christian and you know God and you set your mind on things eternal, that, that will bless you in so many ways. But you're still going to live this life under the sun and experience many hardships. And your days here will still pass away like a shadow. Even if you have eternal life in Christ, you still also now live and you toil under the sun. So Ecclesiastes is, is not telling us that believers can become exempt from the brevity and suffering of this present age. That's the prosperity gospel. This book teaches us how we can live with wisdom and joy in this fallen present age, and despite it, first by accepting the hard truth about it. So life under the sun is just life lived in a fallen world. And things are like this. Is because of man's sin against God. So this question in verse 3, maybe you thought this when you heard some of the words and the ideas. It, it recalls Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man into sin and the curse that came on the world because of it. You know, why is our work here toil that doesn't ultimately profit us? Okay, what did God tell Adam after he fell into sin? Genesis 3, 17. The Lord told man... Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So under the sun our work is, is toil. It's carried out with sweat and pain. And you know, that's true e even for uh, more mental labor, just as much as it is for manual labor. Remember what the end of Ecclesiastes said. Much study is weariness of the flesh. Under the sun, our work is hard work. And it doesn't always work. We plant fruit and vegetables, but thorns and thistles come up. And understand that applies to more than gardening and farming. We toil, but, but the results of our work are often frustrating and sometimes even futile. I mean, don't you feel that about the work you do? Have you ever tried to change a light fixture? <laughs> I mean, someone, someone, a handyman, I'm not a handyman, but a handyman told me, that any time you do a project, you should allot three times as much time as you think it will actually take. It's because Ecclesiastes is true. It takes longer than it should. It ends up being harder than it should. It doesn't turn out like it should. And our bodies and brains can't keep doing it. One commentator explained, ever since the fall of man, all attempts to realize any goal, possess this inherently frustrating character. Even though a specific goal may be achieved, 
Each task undertaken will require more time and effort than the fruit produced should require. This universal experience of humanity may be properly characterized as frustration of frustrations. All is frustration. It's not just you. You're not doing something wrong. You're just living in a fallen world. Ultimately, we gain nothing from our toil under the sun because we die, because we return to dust. And then all gain from a lifetime of toil is taken from us. Ecclesiastes 5.15 As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. So, so that's the ultimate reason why our toil is frustrating is, is because our lives are fleeting. Our bodies return to the dust and, and we don't send ahead any material wealth or, or fruit of our labors to profit us afterwards. So this, this is what Solomon is talking about when he says everything's vanity under the sun. The frustrating and fleeting nature of, of all of life in a fallen world. And it's been true ever since the fall. And, and speaking again of the fall, it's no accident that the Hebrew word used repeatedly in verse 2, vanity, hevel, or hebel, that was the name given to one of the first people born after the fall. Adam and Eve named their son Hebel, Abel, and true to his name. True to the new post-fall reality of life under the sun, his life came to an end quickly. And he was like a vanishing mist. Now again, you know, that this... This is why I felt the need for my faux apology, right? I know these are disturbing truths. Well, if you're sober-minded about them, if you're not really disturbed by these things, are you really listening? Solomon knows this isn't easy listening. To hear life is hard and short, full of frustrations and fleeting but isn't this comforting to hear the Bible say this too? To know that the Bible doesn't give you a, an unreal fairy tale view of life that you know doesn't accord with reality? And remember again why the Bible is telling us this. It's because you, you must come to terms with this to live well and to live wisely and to live with true joy and to live in ways that do matter eternally. Uh, the, the truth of Ecclesiastes, this truth, it equips you to answer correctly the important question of Jesus. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Well, and the correct answer is, that would be no profit, no gain. Because Ecclesiastes 1 is true. There is nothing to be gained under the sun. All is vanity here, just disappearing vapors. And think, why and when did Jesus ask that question in the first place? It was right after he said, if anyone would come after me, and be my disciple, and be saved, and trust me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. So if you get this first truth of Ecclesiastes deep into your bones, that, that everything is vanity under the sun, then that will free your heart to be motivated to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus and find eternal life in His death and resurrection. But here's another way this truth can bless you, hard as it is. Paul says something very Ecclesiastes-like in 1 Timothy 6. He says, we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of the world. And he said that to encourage you to live with contentment and to rescue you from the ruin that will come if your heart starts to be dominated by a desire for riches. 1 Timothy 6, 6, Paul tells us godliness with contentment is great gain 
Why? Because Ecclesiastes, we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Wow, can you be content with, if, with just food and clothing? Well, you can if you really believe Ecclesiastes 1, 2, and 3. If you suffer discontentment, if you struggle with a desire to be rich, you need the medicine that old man Solomon is passing out. It tastes bad at first, but if you swallow it, it brings all kinds of healing to your soul. Now let me give you another. This is a big one, a passage Damon read earlier in the service, Romans 8. It affirms, we live in the world Ecclesiastes describes. The Spirit says in, in Romans 8.20, creation has been subjected to futility. The NIV, it says, creation was subjected to frustration. The King James, creation was made subject to vanity. And the, the Greek word used there is the same one used in the Greek Old Testament of Ecclesiastes 1. Vanity of vanities, frustration of frustrations. The Apostle Paul is saying Ecclesiastes is right. It's all vanity under the sun. And so what is creation now doing because this is true? Well, Romans says all creation is groaning. I heard someone say the book of Ecclesiastes is like one long godly groan over what life is like now under the sun. But that's not the only thing creation is doing in response, right, to this frustrating, fleeting age full of suffering. Creation isn't just groaning. It's also eagerly waiting. It's longing with hope. Wow, where does this hope come from? Well, from this, that God came in our flesh to personally take part in the hardship and vanity that our sin caused. To personally take upon himself the full weight of the curse against our sin. That's what happened when Jesus died for our sins. And then he rose. So sins atoned for, curse undone. And so if you belong to him, we don't just groan here, we hope. Because of what Christ has done for us and even for all creation. If you are a Christian, you should follow creation's lead in how you respond to Ecclesiastes 1, 2, and 3. Let every frustration you experience, let every pain, let every reminder of how fleeting this life is, let it all stir in you hope. For an age coming when we won't live under the sun anymore. We won't have any need for the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will be our light. And we'll see his face. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be crying or mourning or pain. And Christ will get the glory for all of it. Of course, this gospel doesn't mean life isn't still hard now. It is. So, so you shouldn't accept the gospel and then pretend like it isn't. We shouldn't pretend like the fleeting nature of this life isn't painful and tragic. So go ahead and groan. But don't just groan. Hope. Creation is subjected to futility in hope of one day being set free from its bondage to corruption. That's the hope we have because Jesus satisfied God's wrath against our sin in our place and then he rose again in glory as our forerunner. Ecclesiastes, so helpful. It's like the best pre-evangelism. It helps us to get... Get real about real life. 
And, and it unsettles us so that we will only finally settle for the real hope of the gospel. So give up any false hopes that you may have that life in this fallen world won't be frustrating and fleeting, where a whole lifetime of toil will result in no lasting gain. That, that's exactly what's going to happen to all of us. But also, don't look away at that hard truth. Like, if you stop your ears, it won't really be true. Believe it deeply so that you can fear God in everything you do and find joy in everything God gives and cling to the hope of Christ. Now, there's a second big truth about life, the life you're now living, that you need to believe to be able to do these things. Step one down the path of wisdom and joy is, is accepting that everything is vanity under the sun. Step two is accepting that nothing is new under the sun. That, that's the other main point for today. Nothing is new under the sun. Now, verses 4 through 11, Solomon gives a poem that makes this point. Look at verse 4 now. A generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. Well, see here, there's overlap with the previous point. So against the backdrop of the seeming permanence of the earth, generations of people come and go. You're going to die, but the dirt underneath you will remain. And soon you and everyone you know will lie down and never get up again till the resurrection, but the sun will keep rising day after day after day, and, and that's what Solomon talks about next. He gives three examples of things in creation that all do the same thing day after day. So three things in creation that prove there's nothing new happening. The sun, the wind, and the rivers. But remember what Solomon's talking about. This is not just a, a nature documentary. He's talking about man's toil under the sun. So the implication here is that even if these things in creation that all remain after we're long gone, if even these things toil, so to say, and do the same thing day after day, well, how much more should we expect that our lives on earth will be like that? Every day, every week, every month, every year, doing basically nothing new, just the same old toil on repeat. Look at verse 5, the first of the three examples from creation, the sun. The sun rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. So the sun does its day job, rises, goes down, and then what does it do when it finishes its work for the day, poetically speaking? It hurries to go get ready to do it all over again, and again, and again. And the word hastens in the second line is more literally the word panting. It's like the sun pants. It's wearing itself out, hustling to the beginning of another day of work, which is just like the last one. Vanity of vanities. I, I made it through another day of work. Hurry up, get ready, here comes another. Pant on your way to go do the same thing tomorrow. I made it through another school assignment. Oh, hurry up and gasp for air to do it again. <laughs> I made it through another tax season, another round of house cleaning, another sermon. Oh, good for you. Now try and catch your breath because it's time to start the next one. <laughs> yeah. Don't think that you can escape this by finding you know, a, a job that you think is more ideal, like, like working for a church will rescue you from the Ecclesiastes life. <laughs> I'm not trying to get you to pity me or Randy. I'm, I'm trying to encourage you to say, you're not going to escape this. Don't think, oh, the grass will be greener if I had a different job. No, this is life in a fallen world. 
Verse 6, the wind, same thing. The wind blows to the south. It goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. On its circuits, the wind returns. I mean, in the original language, the monotony of this verse is, is more striking. Uh, it, it reads something like this, going to the south and going around to the north. Going around, going around is the going of the wind. And on its going around, the wind returns. Going, 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 round and round and round, always going, always the same, nothing new, that's the wind. I think this verse probably mentions uh, the never-ending north-south circuit of the wind as a contrast to verse 5, the never-ending east-west circuit of the sun. So we put these two verses together, it's like saying, however you want to measure this, whatever way you want to turn the earth to look at, you'll get this picture. Nothing new, repetitive toil. That's how things in creation go. Verse 7 adds a third example. Not just the sun and wind, also the rivers. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. I, I love the imagery here. The streams are constantly flowing to the sea, but the sea's never filled up. It's never at this point where it finally has just got enough water and so the streams can take a break and stop pouring water into it. No, to the place where the streams flow, the water returns and there they go again. Always flowing, but the sea's never full. The job is never quite finished. It's like I'm always, I feel like I'm always doing dishes and the sink is never empty. Or I feel like I'm always picking up after the kids, but the house is never clean. I'm always putting out fires, but things are always burning somewhere. I fix stuff in this house, but the list of stuff to fix doesn't get shorter. There'll be more of the same tomorrow and the day after. On and on, nothing new. Vanity of vanities, frustration of frustrations, no gain. Do you feel this? Does this resonate with your experience? Verse 8 turns the argument and, and talks about speaking, seeing, and hearing. So three things in a man that are never filled or satisfied or finished that echo the three things in creation we just read about that are also never filled or finished. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So man can't say enough, or see enough, or hear enough to be done, to be filled up, to be satisfied. He can't fully express or take in all that needs to be expressed or, or taken in. So he must just keep going, keep toiling day after day, like the sun and the wind and the streams. And there's a key statement in the middle of these two sets of three uh, that captures the heart of the, of the point he's making. That's the first line of verse 8. All things are full of weariness. Weariness. Think again about the sun panting to do it all over again. Wearisome. So, so see what Solomon is telling us to expect. Our, our fleeting lives will be full of tiresome, repetitive toil, where tomorrow is much like today, which was much like yesterday. You work hard today to be in a good position to be able to do the same thing again tomorrow. And that makes us groan. And God is so kind there's mercy laced in this aspect of life in a fallen world because the groaning of it drives us to hope for something better, for Christ, for the age to come. Yeah, but, but even though this is the case, that we, we, we do the same old, same old, we still can't fully figure life out. Uh, uh, so much is the same. It still perplexes us, though. That, that's part of the idea, I think, in the second line of verse 8. Man cannot utter it. Cannot utter it. So, so think again, the picture of life is like a vapor. 
both in the sense of being very momentary, but also in the sense of being hard to grasp. It's elusive. So even though we spend most of our time doing the same old stuff, we're, we're still left thinking very often, I don't know why this is happening. And this too is part of the, the weariness of living in a fallen world, especially for those who try to live independent of God and lean on their own understanding. Now, now look at verse 9. So, so here, finally, it just states directly the point the poem has been making by illustration. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Verse 10 makes the exact same point again, but uh, just in a way that's a bit more punchy. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. Do you know the phrase, the more things change, the more they stay the same? The stuff that you're doing and experiencing on repeat is actually the same kind of stuff generations before you have been doing and experiencing on repeat. It's, it's true. There's nothing new under the sun the, the trappings, you know, through which we experience the world may be different, but at the core, it's nothing new. Now, I, I wonder if, if you can see how this truth also is, is something that seems maybe quite depressing at first, but is actually quite liberating, if you will accept it as your lot, that, that your short life will be full of, of tiresome, repetitive toil. Life under the sun, it's not just vanity, vanity. It's the same old, same old. Okay, these repetitive rhythms that God has put on our lives, they're constraining, they're they're limitations that humble us and help us to know that we're small. We're just, we're creatures. We're not, we're not omni-capable. We're not omni-anything. We do the same stuff every day. God is God. He is infinite. We are not. We need Him. Embrace it. And and amazingly, throughout Ecclesiastes, the gifts of God that we are told repeatedly to enjoy are those just everyday repeat experiences. Our food and drink, our work and labor, our closest relationships. Don't don't break free of the same old, same old. Enjoy it. You cannot live wisely and joyfully if you don't accept with humble contentment this fact of life under the sun. And then you work with all your might at your tiresome, repetitive daily work. You can't escape this reality. You, You can't... Avoid your life being tiring and repetitive any more than you can avoid your life being hard and short. And those who try in, in discontentment and in and, and pride, who refuse to settle down for any daily humdrum, is that, I'm above that. I deserve better than that. And, and, and so they always resolve to chase after what feels new and exciting. Well, they will end up doing and believing many foolish things. And they will end up with multiplied sorrows. The path of wisdom and joy comes after you see there is nothing new under the sun. And you say, I'm okay with that. I, I will I'll make it my ambition to live in sync with that. I won't be so self-important that I demand God give me a life and work that's less monotonous than the job he gave the sun and every other human in history. Don't kick against the goads of the wearisome monotony of life under the sun. You can learn by God's grace and in the fear of him to enjoy 
the repeating rhythms of hard work under the sun. That's Ecclesiastes. And especially you can if you learn that your toil isn't for the sake of accumulating lasting gain. And also if you just expect you'll be hampered by constant frustrations. You know, we can apply this broad wisdom principle to all kinds of areas, really. Um, I'll just give you one more. Our sanctification, our growing in godliness. The way to grow in godliness is to devote yourself to daily, diligent use of the ordinary means of grace that God has given us. Forget looking for something new. Just learn to enjoy these ordinary means on repeat. The word, prayer, fellowship, the ordinances. Now finally, look at verse 11. The last verse of the opening section of Ecclesiastes. Verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. You thought verses 1 through 10 were hard to hear. No remembrance of former things or things to come. Understand what this means. Vanishing mist. We shouldn't count on there being any enduring memory on earth of any of our earthly accomplishments. We shouldn't even count on anyone remembering who we were after enough time has passed. If that makes you really upset, ask yourself, why? Those who may come after you, your children, your grandchildren, and so on, they too will die and chances are will eventually be forgotten also. Isn't this the ultimate blow to our pride? To our desire to make a name for ourselves. To gain for ourselves a legacy that generations will respect and acknowledge. You know, we think if we can't, if we can't toil to gain a surplus that we can take with us after death, maybe at least we can toil to gain a name for ourselves that we leave behind. Or maybe we can toil to set up our children to make a name for themselves that they leave behind. The preacher said, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. While the earth remains, generations will come and generations will go. And consider this. There are over 8 billion people alive today. There are only so many biographies that can be written. <laughs> History books can only be so long. And even for that tiny percentage of people who are remembered on the earth by at least some people centuries after they die, how much is really remembered? And more importantly... What lasting benefit does that actually provide for the person when they're either in heaven or hell waiting for the time when God brings every deed into judgment so everything still matters? Well, the benefit to that person if people remember them on earth is none. No gain. So, so even if you you know, catch the golden goose of being remembered a little longer than most people are. It's not actually gain for you in the end. That's freedom. I don't know about you. I've experienced a lot of angst in my heart. You know, trying to chase something like this. I don't need to. I shouldn't. And neither should you. This is good news. It is, a, it is an invitation to lay aside the vain quest to try and become like God and to gain immortal fame and to win for ourselves a glory that other people recognize in this generation and generations to come. 
Ecclesiastes is not trying to beat you down. It's trying to lead you somewhere good, very good. If you can humble yourself and, and be content with this reality about life under the sun, you'll live better. You'll enjoy life more. And you can even start to enjoy some of eternal life now in knowing God, in knowing Christ and walking with Him and just waiting for His judgments. So, so I want to encourage you, don't just reluctantly accept that this is true. Worship God. Be glad over this truth. Psalm 102, 11 and 12 turns this idea into a worship song and says, My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever, and you are remembered throughout all generations. Adopt Isaiah 26, 8 as your hearts cry, O Lord, in the paths of your judgments, we wait for you, your name, your remembrance are the desire of our souls. And sing, sing with joy about Jesus Christ, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise. He will never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. That, that is true wisdom that unlocks the doors to a life well lived. That is the whole duty of man. It's the only thing you really need to be concerned about day in and day out, not trying to make a name for yourself so that you won't be soon forgotten. No, just fear God and keep His commandments. If you make that your whole duty, then you can actually start to enjoy the things that God gives you instead of trying to use them as a kind of currency to purchase for yourself lasting earthly importance. That's a bad investment. In addition to being the path to folly and sorrow, everything is vanity under the sun. Nothing is new under the sun. And in the heart of a person that fears God, these two hard truths about this hard life, they don't weigh you down. They, they actually make your yoke easier. And they make your burden lighter. So believe what the wise old king says. Believe, believe what the Spirit says through him. And find rest for your soul. E even during these wearisome, repetitive, frustrating few days you have under the sun, you can find rest for your soul in Christ. God, we know that we have so often played the fool in the way that we've thought about life and the goals we have had. God, I pray you would forgive us and I pray you would make us wise in accordance with the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. I pray that you would help us to groan in a godly way over life's frustrations and fleeting nature, but help us also to hope because of Christ, so that His will be the glory through our life, even now. We pray this in His name with thanksgiving. Amen.